I titled this message, uh, The Conflict in Christmas, and don't worry, I'm not going to be talking about your crazy uncle who always starts like political arguments or something like that around Christmas time. Um, we're going to be looking at a kind of a different angle on Christmas, and this is going to be what I'm going to call my Christmas message of the year, because next Sunday, uh, on actual Christmas Day, we're going to be doing something a little different. So I decided to bring my, my Christmas message a week early. Um, and we're going to be talking a little bit about what is different than, in the Christmas story than what we normally hear. But before we get there, I want to tell you some facts. You may be surprised. So, there's a lot in our world that goes unseen. Okay? Things that almost no one on the planet knows about. All right. For example, did you know that 1,000... Excuse me. 120,000 tons, that's 240,000 pounds of space debris enters our atmosphere every single day. Just for reference, I know this is how Americans love to measure things. That's 37 Ford F-150s, okay, that are falling to the earth every single day in space debris. Luckily, most of it's small enough that it doesn't actually hurt anything or it gets burned up in the atmosphere. But on average, 17 meteors make it to Earth's surface every single day, and that's 6,100 a year. In fact, if you set a bucket out on your roof and you leave it there for long enough and you go to collect it, you will find little bits of space debris that's fallen in your bucket. It's pretty cool. You can harvest things from, the, from space. Um, and some of these asteroids that come near Earth are potentially life-threatening. For example, just a couple months ago in October, Asteroid RM4 came pretty close to Earth. So this asteroid, RM4, is 2,427 feet tall, which is almost as tall as the largest building in the world, now that you all know about that. Um, We talked about it last week. So it's a very big rock, okay? And that's menacing on its own, but then you account that it's traveling 52,000 miles an hour, which is 68 times faster than the speed of sound. And it's needless to say that it would cause some damage if it hit Earth, right? And this passed right by us. Now, don't be too worried. NASA was tracking RM4 and still is tracking RM4, along with many, many thousands of other potentially life-threatening world-ending asteroids that fly by Earth. Um, And when NASA says that it got close, I I do want to you know, preface it, or I want to explain a little bit. It was 1.43 million miles away from Earth, okay? Which is only six times further away than the moon is from Earth. So, I mean, it wasn't, like, right next door, but it was pretty close. It was uncomfortably close. It was close enough, in fact, that with a telescope, you could have taken a picture of it from Earth. It's, uh, it was, it's a big rock, and it was traveling very fast and could have really done some damage. Now, this may worry you is that NASA estimates that 40% of dangerous asteroids are yet unknown and untracked. (laughs) So, you know, just because NASA knows some of them doesn't mean they know all of them. And so each day, we are blissfully driving through the snow, singing Christmas songs, eating 444s from Wendy's, petting puppies. This is my life. I don't know what you're doing. But this is my life. And I am totally unaware. I don't even think about, like, oh, yeah, an asteroid could fall from the sun or fall from the space right now and destroy my house or, you know, 
cause some cataclysmic event. You know, the worst thing would be that if a gamma ray burst happened to blow the atmosphere off our planet and we just cook, you know, because of the sun's radiation, our ozone layer is gone. That would be worst case scenario, I think. An asteroid would at least be fast. So, there's, the point is, the point is, there's all kinds of stuff, not just space debris and asteroids and gamma bursts that we aren't aware of that are happening all the time around us, but there are lots of other things that pretty much go unnoticed by the majority of people. And the reality is that a lot of what the world is would be mysterious to us if God had revealed it. You see, there is um, some knowledge that God has that we don't have, I would say. That's fair, right? An all-knowing being. He knows some things that we don't know. And he chooses to tell us some of those things. He chooses to reveal some of those things to us. And today we're going to be talking about a little bit of that revelation in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Fun, isn't it? And this is a whole book in God's scripture that is dedicated to showing and telling us important truths about the word and the world. And so today we're going to be looking at the Christmas story in Revelation, which you may have never heard the Christmas story from Revelation before, but we're going to talk about it a little bit. And believe it or not, Jesus' birth isn't all peace, angels singing in the night, and shepherds watching, okay? There's actually a lot more going on. In fact, it was a battle. It was a cosmic conflict. And we wouldn't know about it unless God had revealed it to us. Go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. And notice, I think it's important to know, because this is, this is uh, what makes you sound like a well-educated Christian. It's not Revelations, Okay? Revelation. I was in Haikyuu. Have you guys ever heard of Haikyuu? It's like a high school quizzing tournament thing. Anyway, it was right on my alley. <laughs> and so I was in that in high school, and we were going to beat this team, and some kid answered Revelations on my team to like a book of Bible question. I was like, it's actually not Revelations, it's Revelation. As a good pastor's kid, I knew that. And they're like, oh, yes, it specifically says, they gave us the point, and they're like, actually, it specifically says not to accept Revelations as an answer, because it's incorrect. And so they took the point away, and we lost. So I should have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> so the next time you're in a high Q competition, make sure you say Revelation and not Revelations, okay? It's just plain old Revelation without the S. But what we're going to find out today is that what we're reading is anything but plain, okay? And it's important to know that Revelation isn't a, a book to be taken literally. And, and by that, I mean that we shouldn't read the words that we see as in that's the actual reality of what it's trying to explain. Revelation is a biblical uh, type of book called apocalyptic literature. And that means that this reader needs to interpret it. It's kind of like poetry in that way. All right, so there's images, there's visions, there are metaphors, there are other literary devices, there are connections to other parts of the Bible that you need to bring in in order to understand what's actually being said. And that is something that we need to be mindful of as readers. And you guys may have heard the word apocalyptic when I said apocalyptic literature, and you're like, whoa, that's the end of the world, right? Well, yes, in our modern English, apocalypse means end of the world, but revelation the title of this book is actually, actually the Greek word apocalypsis, right? The word apocalypse actually just means to reveal something. It means to let something be known. It's actually not dealing with the end of the world at all. It's a, it's a revelation. 
In fact, why our culture thinks that apocalypse means end of the world is because of this book. Because it talks about the end of the world. It talks about the end of this age and some bad stuff that's going to happen. And so today, we hear apocalypse, we think end of the world. But it actually just means to make something known. Interesting how the Bible has influenced that. It really shows the cultural significance of the Bible. Anyway, John, the author of this book, sees this vision in Revelation chapter 12. He writes it down. And so we have some interpreting to do. And I think the best thing we can do at this point is just to read it. So we're going to start just in verse 1 here and read the first six verses. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems, that's crowns. And his tail swept a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, you may be wondering what in the world you just read. <laughs> All right? And I would not blame you. There is some weird language in this passage that I want us to be able to understand. So a lot of people, when they hear Revelation, they're like, okay, I don't want anything to do with that book. It is too weird. I have no idea what it's talking about. And there are some people that have, like, this fascination with it. They're like, oh, yes, I love to read about the crows, like, plucking out the eyes and the third of the seas being evaporated. It's like, just like this crazy stuff going on. I want to know more about it. But either case, a lot of people think Revelation can't really be understood. Like, it's just a bunch of crazy visions. But I contend that this book is actually written for us to know what it's saying. God didn't give John these visions for us to just read about and wonder, wow, that's kind of crazy. I wonder what that means. No, he wrote these things down so that we could learn something and know something so that he could reveal some truth to us. And all we need is the right tools and background information to make sense of it all. So let's start with the male child in this passage. I think that's probably the easiest place to start. Now this male child here is said to be the future ruler of the nations and will rule them with a rod of iron. What male child has was foretold and described to be a ruler of the nations? Jesus. It's the easiest Sunday school answer. That's always the right answer. Jesus. Jesus. Of course it's Jesus. And another clue that helps us understand that this is Jesus is the phrase rod of iron, which is a direct quote from Psalm 2, and the New Testament authors quote Psalm 2 a couple of times in reference to Jesus as the Messiah. All right, so on screen, I've, I've compiled a couple of verses here from Psalm 2 to show you what uh, is being talked about here in Revelation. So this is from Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, that's Jehovah, that's the Lord, and against his anointed, and that just means Messiah. Anointed is literally the word Mashiach, which means to be anointed. It just means that God has chosen you. 
And there is the Messiah, the big chosen one, that is going to be the ruler of these nations. And we'll see here, rule with a rod of iron. So, I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earth, like earthenware. So this is the passage that Revelation is referencing when it talks about this child ruling over the nations with a rod of iron. And so if you have Psalm 2 in your head and you read Revelation, you're like, oh yeah, that's totally God's Messiah. That is Jesus. So then that brings us to the mother mentioned earlier, right? So if we're talking about Jesus as this male child, well, then his mom is totally Mary, right? Well, not so fast. There's some weird things going on here, being clothed to the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars. There's no other description of Mary like that in Scripture. Well, what could it mean? Well, there's one other place in the Bible that uses this kind of language. And it's from Genesis 37. And we'll read that in a second. I'll have it on the screen for you. But I want to recap some history first. So God made promises to Abraham, right, about um, how God was going to make him into a people. He was going to take the bloodline and create a nation out of him. Then Abraham had a son named Isaac, and he got those same promises. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob, and he got these same promises. And then Jacob had 12 sons. And then God changed Jacob's name to Israel, right? And that's where the nation gets its name. And then these sons of Jacob would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's how Israel came about. And one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, you guys may know he's the one that had the coat of many colors, got thrown in Egypt, became second in command, and saved a bunch of people from a famine. He also had a lot of dreams and visions. This is one of Jacob's sons. And one of these visions is very similar to what we read in Revelation chapter 12. So this is from Genesis 37, 9 through 11. Now he, he, now, <laughs> now he, he. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Sound familiar? And he related this to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? This is the interpretation. Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So his brothers were like, no way, we're not going to bow down to Joseph. They ended up plotting to kill him. And his father's like, well, you know, maybe there's something to this. And at this point, Jacob and his wife and his sons were the entire nation of Israel. Keep that in mind, right? They were the people of Israel that God had promised. It was just them. So this encompasses the whole nation. And God's people at this point were uh, bowing down to Joseph. That's what this vision is about. But then in Revelation 12, there's a small detail change from this and that there are 12 stars in this crown instead of 11. And that means that there's the 12th tribe. So I think it makes very much sense that the mother in Revelation chapter 12 isn't Mary, 
who is Jesus's actual mother, but in fact, it is the nation of Israel that is being talked about. Israel, the nation, is this pregnant woman who is clothed with the sun, has the moon at her feet, and wears the crown of 12 stars. And she is going to give birth to the Messiah. Through the nation of Israel, God is going to let his Messiah be born. Through her pain and her suffering, the Messiah will come into the world. And this makes perfect sense, right? Once we see all the pieces fit together, Jesus is coming through the nation of Israel, and there's this opposition to the nation of Israel. There's this red dragon attacking it. And what's all about the red dragon? Well, this may uh, surprise you, but the red dragon is Satan. It is devil. And we can see the devil. We can see that right here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. You can look there with me. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old. That's going back to Genesis. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Who deceives the world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him. So Revelation chapter 12 makes it very clear that this great red dragon is in fact Satan. So why did Satan want to devour this child in this vision? Well, because this child was prophesied to be his downfall. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God deals out some prophecy. And he says, the seed of Eve, one of her descendants, is going to crush Satan's head. He's going to crush the head of Satan. In other words, he's going to strike a lethal blow. So if Satan could destroy this son, he could stop this prophecy from being fulfilled and he could win the war, right? Now we know better than to think that Satan could actually somehow stop the Messiah being born, that he could, you know, get in the way of God's plans. But there were a lot of times that in Jewish history, they were almost wiped out. Specifically, the bloodline of the Messiah was almost taken out. So if we go back to the story of Genesis, um, Esau and Jacob, we were just talking about Jacob a minute ago. Esau tried to kill Jacob. He was the heir to the promise of God. Right? We go a little further in the Old Testament to Exodus. Pharaoh gives a nationwide command to kill every male Jewish boy that was born, essentially trying to wipe out the Jewish people in a generation. And in 1 Samuel, Saul tries to kill David over and over and over again, and David was this promised king who God said the Messiah would come from. He'd come from the line of David. So if David had died, that would have put it into that. And then we move a little further to the book of Esther. A man named Haman tries to have every single Jew in the empire killed. Right? And then we move to the New Testament with Jesus' birth. Herod makes a decree that every male child in the Bethlehem region under the age of two should be killed. Right? Over and over and over again, there's this attempt to wipe out the Jewish people. And I think that has Satan's fingerprints all over it. Right? Him trying to devour this child to stop him from being born. And this is the continual conflict in Scripture. And it makes perfect sense when we see Revelation chapter 12 that there is this red dragon who is doing everything it can to kill this baby who is coming from Israel, to kill the Messiah who is going to rule over the nations, who is going to destroy Satan. But every single time, Satan 
and the forces of this world tried to get in the way of Jesus being born, God came through powerfully. And he made a way for his son to be born. And he made a way for his son to live a sinless life so that he could die and be resurrected for us to give us a hope of eternal life. That's what God is doing. That's what Christmas is about. And so there's this cosmic battle that we are unaware of, just like the asteroids flying around in space, right? It was this battle between the dragon and Israel, between God and Satan. This invisible war that Revelation reveals to us. And it's in passages like this that we read today that we realize that there are things going on that we don't see. There are things hidden in the dark, but we are children of the light. And God reveals those truths to us. And in this case, the truth that Jesus being born wasn't just a one-night event. It was a culmination of thousands of years of planning. It was a battle. It was a striking blow to the enemy. So I hope now you see the conflict in Christmas, right? The spiritual war that was happening unknown to the world. So what can we take from this message? Well, there are a few things. First of all, I think this adjusts our Christmas perspectives. It sets our Christmas perspective for this season. There is nothing wrong with giving gifts. There's nothing wrong with hanging out in family. But Christmas is not about living the consumer's dream, right? That is not what it is about. Categorically, not about that. Christmas is about winning a spiritual war. It's about the coming Messiah. It's about God's providence and power. It's about God's promises. And then that reminds us that there is more than what we can see. There is an entire spiritual realm with big things happening all around us. Like giant skyscraper-sized asteroids just on the other side of the atmosphere. There's a lot of things going on that we can't see. Let's remember that. And let's stay sharp. The last thing is that we learn that Scripture actually informs Scripture. This means that other Scripture helps us to understand other places in the Bible. And I think Revelation 12 is a perfect example of that. In this one passage, there are multiple references to texts much earlier in the Bible. And I'm not saying that you need to have everything in the Bible memorized. But if something comes up that you don't understand in Scripture, there's a good chance there's something else in the Bible that will help you understand it. So search that out. You can ask Tom. He's like an encyclopedia. He knows almost everything. Or ask Google. Google is, is very helpful too. Come ask me. There's so much that the Bible helps. It's a hyperlinked text. Everything is connected. So I know that today wasn't the traditional Christmas message, but I thought it was important to talk about. In this Christmas season, I hope you get to see the big picture, that Christ's birth is a lot bigger than just one night. That it is a plan. It is a war won. And I don't think there's a word big enough. There isn't a word adequate enough to describe really the monumental event of Jesus' birth. So I'm not even going to try to make up a word. It was a big deal, okay? And this baby boy that was born would go on to change everything. And then he would continue changing things in his life. 
And then he will come back to change everything once again. And finally put an end to Satan and death. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for revealing truth to us. For giving us knowledge and understanding. I just pray that over the next week, as we are thinking about the birth of your son, that we have thankfulness in our heart and joy because of what he brought and what he represents. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.